When it comes to sci-fi, it would appear that filmmakers are in open conflict with their subject. From Blade Runner, Robocop, Jurassic Park and Stargate, to Gattaca, Minority Report, Primer and Ex Machina, the stories often begin by announcing some world-changing scientific or technological discovery, only for the story to conclude with the breakthrough being rejected if not condemned. So much so that by the end, it appears that inertia is more valued than innovation, that development is bad because not only does it challenge orthodoxy, it results in destruction. Now, I said it would appear because it is not as if filmmakers are inherently suspicious of research and progress, but rather they know that if the breakthrough that kickstarts their plot were readily accepted, there would hardly be any conflict in the story. Replicants with built-in termination dates would not fight for more life. Dinosaurs born into controlled environments would not run amok in theme parks. Likewise, once a robot becomes sentient, it would not become murderous. Which is why most sci-fi films focus on the moment when the genius project goes wrong, the Furies are unleashed and catastrophe ensues. Take your stinking bar off me, you damn 38! What most sci-fi stories do is emphasise our desire for knowledge of, and thus secure greater command over, our existence. We can trace such stories all the way back to ancient Greece and the myths of Icarus and Prometheus. Icarus's ambition was to master flight, but when he flew too close to the sun, his wings made of wax melted and he crashed back down to earth. As for Prometheus, his name means forethought, and having had the impotence to steal fire from the gods, fashion humans out of clay and give us life. The Titan was tied to a rock where he was condemned for all eternity to have an eagle feed on his liver. In other words, the acquisition of knowledge can be cursed. In 1818, Mary Shelley reconfigured the Promethean legend with Frankenstein, where both the doctor and creature are victims. Shelley's novel, which she published at the age of 21, is of such importance that she is seen in some quarters today as the mother of the entire science fiction genre. But Shelley did something else as well. Given her story was about a medic who fused body parts to generate a new creature, it is rather fitting that Shelley fused her newly invented category with an already existing one. Horror. And that paved the way in 1886 for both H.G. Wells's The Island of Dr. Moreau and Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and then later in 1915, Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis. One morning, as Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he had been changed into a monstrous, verminous bug. He lay on his armor-hard back and saw, as he lifted his head up a little, his brown, arched abdomen divided into rigid bow-like sections. David Cronenberg's The Fly is loosely adapted from a short story written by George Langelan, first published in June 1957 by Playboy magazine. Langelan's plot chronicled a scientist's research into matter transference. André de Lambre creates two machines he calls disintegrator reintegrators, which he hopes will instantaneously teletransport objects from one space to another. If de Lambre can master the phenomenon, his breakthrough could well revolutionise movement across the globe. 
But when Delambre attempts to transport himself between the machines, a common housefly enters the transmission chamber and their genes get crossed. The film rights were quickly snapped up by 20th Century Fox and barely over a year later, in August 1958, the first film version, directed by Kurt Neumann, was already in theatres. It's astounding! It works! I test ran it this morning. It's all right. You've succeeded completely. It's, it's unbelievable. Oh, we'll have to wait and see. I'll know for sure in a few weeks. I don't understand. I have to see if it suffers from any ill effects. Oh. If it's alive in, say, a month, then we'll pronounce the experiment successful. For some reason, people refer to Cronenberg's film as a remake of Neumann's film. Cronenberg's film is not a remake. Both versions of The Fly were adapted from Langeland's source material, but long before Cronenberg was approached to direct, producer Stuart Kornfeld had hired writer Charles Edward Pogue to tackle a new version. Where Pogue's resulting script radically reimagined and updated the original concept, Clavel's adaptation had been extremely faithful to Langeland's short story, to the point where Delambre doesn't so much merge with The Fly as much as only his head and hand are swapped. And to anyone with even the remotest knowledge of interbreeding would know that that is not the way it works. Which is why Pogue decided to chart a gradual physiological mutation, where the chromosomes of man and insect fuse to form a completely new identity. When Cronenberg was engaged as director, he then took Pogue's script and, keeping the structure, rewrote the characters' relationships. Hence, Cronenberg's film is not a remake, but a new adaptation. Why am I being so pedantic about originals and remakes? Because The Fly is about splicing DNA. Here is Cronenberg in 1986 being interviewed for the documentary Long Live the New Flesh, produced by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and Channel 4 UK. I notice that my characters talk about the flesh uh, undergoing revolution at times, and uh, I see that and I think, well, yeah, I guess that's really what it is. It's, it's sort of the, the independence of the body relative to the mind and the difficulty of the mind accepting what that revolution might entail. Why should we die? Why should a healthy mind die just because a body is not healthy? How do you have a man dying, a complete physical wreck, and his mind is absolutely sharp and clear? It's, it's the old Cartesian absolute split between the two. There's, there, is, there seems to be a point at which they should fuse and it should be very apparent to everyone, and it's not. It really isn't. And I think that is um, one of the bases of, of horror in general. Another crucial difference is that Cronenberg's film changes the relationship between his two lead characters. In Langeland's story, Delambre is married. So, instead of husband and wife, Cronenberg's film begins with a scientist, Seth Brundlefly, played by Jeff Goldblum, meeting journalist Veronica Quaif, played by Gina Davis. And then he spends nearly the first two-thirds of the story charting their initial conversations, ensuing relationship and eventual breakup. You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. You look bad. You smell bad. I've never been much of a bather. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I took them to a lab. 
I had them analyzed. The hairs? The hairs? Oh. Yeah, that's a strange thing to do. Not as strange as the results. The guy at the lab had trouble identifying them. He finally came to the conclusion that they were definitely not human. Oh. <laughs> very good. Not human, Seth. In fact, very likely insect hairs. And that is really where Cronenberg not only separated his adaptation from both Langeland's original and Neumann's version, but elevated it above and beyond both. Cronenberg managed to do this by weaving into the scientific exploration, discovery, elation and horror, an audacious love story. It works in a way that is simultaneously surprising, yet on a subconscious level, uncannily familiar. Essentially, it is a traditional fairy tale written in 1740 by French novelist Gabrielle Susanna Barbeau de Villeneuve, Beauty and the Beast. But again, Cronenberg conducts some startling surgery and mutates the timeline so that instead of Beauty becoming the Beast, the man becomes the Beast. I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying... Saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying I'll hurt you this day. The early part of Cronenberg's career saw him specialize in body horror, crimes of the future. Shivers, Rabbit, The Brood, Scanners and Videodrome all positioned the body as a site of infection with a subsequent loss of integrity, then radical transformation and ultimately destruction. So with The Fly it appeared that Cronenberg was only consolidating his theme. But he wasn't. It signalled a subtle change in direction that really is only discernible with hindsight. That change can first be seen in the fly's various designs. First, the costumes created by Denise Cronenberg, sister of the director. Note the way Seth's wardrobe changes throughout the story. We first see him in a sports jacket, white shirt and tie. When his relationship with Ronnie begins, she notices his wardrobe is filled with replicas of the same jacket, slacks and shirt. Seth explains that just like Einstein, he does not want to devote brain energy deciding what to wear. Nevertheless, Ronnie decides to buy Seth some clothes, a patterned shirt and a leather jacket. Seth is happy to wear them, which means his change in wardrobe prefigures his first teletransportation. In other words, the change begins with his outer appearance before infiltrating the body. Secondly, consider the casting of Jeff Goldblum in the role of Seth. Goldblum's height immediately sets him out from the rest of the male cast, and with his slightly protruding eyes, well, proportionally, flies have rather large eyes. But beyond that, it is the way Goldblum trained his body that is most arresting. A very elegant mover, Goldblum put in many hours in the gym to achieve a particularly powerful athletic physique, and Cronenberg ensures that the maximum amount of Goldblum's body is visible. Gratuitous? 
Hardly, because it makes Seth's transformation and destruction all the more difficult to watch. And finally, let's look at Carol Spears' production design, specifically Seth's laboratory. It is in a rundown part of the city, a disused warehouse which Seth has repurposed into a work and living space. Such a move was typical in the 80s in cities all across the Western world, where once abandoned urban spaces were revitalised. Again, transformation. In other words, everything in Cronenberg's film charts Seth's metamorphosis. Even cinematographer Mark Irwin's lighting design grows increasingly dark as the story progresses. Because reviews almost always coincide with the film's release, many critics don't consider a film's shelf life beyond that date. As a consequence, all too often, critics, having seen the film only once, discuss the film as if it were a weather vane for their times, an indicator of zeitgeist anxieties. Which means that when The Fly was released in the summer of 1986, the knee-jerk interpretation was that it was a metaphor for AIDS. Metaphors are great tools for storytellers, but when it comes to interpretation, they can cause all manner of divilment, because they appear to give critics and audiences license to determine the film's real meaning. Thus, they lose sight of the fact that maybe, just maybe, the filmmaker was doing something else. And in the case of The Fly, Cronenberg was doing something else. He was transforming as a filmmaker. His vision was changing, as were his concerns. Proof of that is in the film's ending. Having all but completely metamorphosed into Brundlefly, Seth wants Ronnie, pregnant with their child, to merge with him in the telepod. But his attempt is foiled and instead he is fused with the telepod himself and what results is a body that is half biology, half technology. In a word, biotechnology. The term biotechnology was first coined back in 1919 by Hungarian agricultural engineer Karoli Arecki. But what Arecki meant was a creation of large-scale food farms. Since then, biotechnology has developed into medicinal, industrial and environmental arenas. But with regard to the film, Brundlefly is a product of gene splicing, something which in reality only came of age in biotechnology last year. The technology is called Cior Spior, clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. This breakthrough allows biologists to shuffle genes in and out of the DNA matrix at great speed. Which means blending genetic profiles at speed is finally here. Perhaps the next phase in biotechnological revolution is something part human, made up of hard tech, soft tech, and a blend of other genetic material. In a word, transhuman. Very few of us realised it at the time, but Cronenberg had already begun exploring this theme immediately prior to directing The Fly when he made Videodrome. Your body has already done a lot of changing, but that's only the beginning. The beginning of the new flesh. Cronenberg would further explore the theme of transhumanism in 1993 with his adaptation of William Burroughs' supposedly unfilmable novel The Naked Lunch, and again later in 1999 with Exis Dens. 
But for me, profoundly compelling as those films are, The Fly is Cronenberg's greatest masterpiece. Not only one of the outstanding pictures of the 80s, but easily one of the greatest sci-fi and or horror pictures ever made.